Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, we welcome those of you who are meeting here at Central Campus and also those of you uh, who are watching online along with the rest of our church family who are meeting together at our other campuses in Bridgeland in uh, Northwest Calgary, also in the south of Calgary, and in Airdrie, the wonderful folks I had the joy of worshiping with uh, this last weekend. I want to say hello to Pastor Travis, your team, and to all the rest of you out there in Airdrie, and what uh, the wonderful th- work that I see God doing in and through all of you. God bless you all. Now, there's one person from Airdrie that's here. That's good. That is good. You made it. Good. All right. We're in a series in, on what the Bible has to say about one of the key pursuits of a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, and that is the pursuit of generosity. This past week, someone handed me some recent research that proves Jesus was right when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. One study indicated that People who are consistently generous on a whole are happier, are healthier, and have a greater sense of purpose in life than those who um, are, aren't generous or are only occasionally generous. However, even though people feel good when they give, most resist being generous uh, regularly in a sacrificial way. And the Bible says that this battle rages within us because our relationship with God is fractured. And consequently, our God-given desire to be generous is broken or distorted as well. We want to be generous, and yet we resist doing so because we have fears, we have concerns. We're, We're worried that we won't have enough money to provide for our basic needs. Uh, We have this fear that we're going to lose control uh, or security that the money gives to us. This struggle will continue until we put our trust in God and find contentment and rest in God and God alone. The psalmist put it this way, truly my soul finds rest. My soul finds contentment in God. And so today I want to explore what the Bible teaches about contentment. You know, when a person is alone and sick, when that person is in prison and facing the possibility of execution for a crime he didn't commit, when that person has little or no money or possessions, and yet that person writes his friends and says, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. And that same person, while in prison, follows that up by saying, I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances, I want to learn from that person. And that is what we're going to do. We're going to learn about contentment from the life of the Apostle Paul. And so I'm going to ask that you would stand, turn in your Bibles to Philippians, the fourth chapter, and join me in reading a portion of this chapter together. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, 
With thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And the God of peace will be with you. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do this through him who gives me strength. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for your amazing generosity extended to each one of us. Lord, you've called us to, to manage what you've given to us well. You've called us to advance your kingdom work by being generous. Lord, teach us today what it means to be content. Help us to deal with our discontent and all the things that are a fallout of that. I pray, Lord, that you would focus our minds, that you would soften our hearts, and you would give us, Lord, the courage to respond in whatever way you would have us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, my wife Gwen will tell you that I do not like shopping at the best of times. But I especially didn't like it when our boys were young. Because as we made our way to a particular store to get what we needed, we would pass numerous other stores on the way in which our boys would discover a truckload of toys and other gadgets that they believed were absolutely crucial to their ongoing happiness. And so for the entire time that we were in the mall, I would be bombarded with, Dad, can we buy this? No. Dad, how about this? I could really use this. No. Dad, I'm serious. I, I really need this. I mean, at least look at it. No. Now, inevitably, one of, uh, one of them or all of them uh, would be captivated by some $5 toy that they were convinced that they could not live without. And after what seemed like an eternity of incessant pleading and begging, I would surprise them with my final answer. No. <laughs> and upon hearing that hated word, on a good day, there would follow much moping and whining my life is going to end. And on a bad day, there would be much wailing and gnashing of teeth. And this would go on for some time until I figured it was time to get our boys to focus on something new. And I would say, hey guys, how many of you are up to a shake and a burger at Peter's Drive-In? Well, no sooner did those words come out of my mouth that we witnessed a miracle right before our eyes. Tonka's $5 
truck faded away and Peter's juicy burgers took center stage. Frowns were immediately replaced with beaming smiles as they all yelled, we do. And on a good day, they would actually break out singing for he's a jolly good fellow. <laughs> now, I'm sure those of you who are parents, you can relate to this and you're thinking, oh, children, children. What needless pain they bear, all because they do not realize that happiness cannot be found in things. Now, you would think as we grow older, we would get smarter. We would figure this thing out. We would see it for what it is. But you see, we continue to believe and live like lasting contentment and joy is just one more purchase away. Or is just one more promotion away? Or one more trophy or ecstatic experience away? Let's be honest. The only thing that changes between our childhood desires and our adult desires is that, is that the toys that we covet are a whole lot more expensive. Discontentment is an ugly, ugly, deadly disease. Some people spend their entire life plagued by a state of discontent. Their spouse doesn't measure up. Their children aren't meeting their expectations. Their friends are letting them down. They don't like their work or, or, or they wish they lived somewhere else, especially on days like today. So let me ask you, how content are you? If you want to get a rough idea of the level of your contentment. Think about how much you complain, grumble, and harbor feelings of envy or jealousy. Now, don't raise your hand, but when was the last time that you complained or grumbled about your looks, your finances, your boss, your marriage, your children, your parents, the weather in Calgary, your church, your youth group, your pastor. Just thought I'd slide that one in. <laughs> Most of us struggle with discontentment. So what does it mean to be content? Well, fundamentally, contentment is the experience of inner freedom that says, I'm satisfied. I have all that I need. In verse 11, Paul says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. He's saying, I may not like my circumstance. He's not thrilled to be in jail. But he says, I'm satisfied. Because in Christ, I have all that I need to be content. Now, let me be clear. When Paul says here, I have learned to be content, he's not saying, I've learned to be complacent. Or I've um, learned to care less about being all that God created me to be. You see, all the incredible things that Christians are doing here in Calgary, in our nation, and around the world that are transforming lives and, and are transforming communities and are addressing issues like poverty and injustice are the result of a holy kind of discontentment that wells up inside of us and causes us to say, I can't stand it anymore. That causes us to say, this isn't right. I have to do something about it. The Apostle Paul was anything but 
complacent. In Philippians 3.13, he said, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul was ambitious, but his driving motivation wasn't about advancing himself. It wasn't uh, about climbing the corporate ladder. It wasn't about getting more for himself. No, it was about making the invisible Christ visible for all to see in and through his life. He said, for me to live is Christ. It's about him. It's not about me. Contentment is not apathy. It is not laziness. It is not settling for mediocrity or the status quo. Neither is contentment saying, well, I've made all the money I need, so I'm just going to lay back now, I'm going to sip lemonade, play golf until the Lord comes back. Now, God didn't give us our talents, our gifts. He didn't give us our financial resources just for our own use. He also gave them to us. In fact, he gives us the ability to make money so that we might help others and advance his kingdom purposes in our world. Whether in a paid position or in a volunteer role, as long as we're able to work, God wants us to glorify him and advance his kingdom purposes by exercising the gifts and the abilities he's given to us. There's no retirement in the Christian life. And so again, contentment is that place of inner freedom that says, I'm satisfied. In Christ, I have all that I need. Now when Paul says, I've learned to be content, he's also indicating that it's possible to be content. Contentment is something that we can all achieve. He's also saying here that contentment is a process. Contentment didn't come to him all in one day. No, he learned. That's what he says. I have learned to be content over time. And so must we. And so let's learn from Paul's example how we can grow in contentment. Here in the fourth chapter of Philippians, which we just read together, or at least parts of it, Paul explains that contentment comes to those who do two things. The first one is they put their trust in Jesus, and the second one is they think like Jesus. Let's unpack those a little bit. First of all, contentment comes to those who put their trust in Jesus. Look at verse 6. Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious. Paul is touching on one of the key assassins of contentment. Fear, anxiety. We struggle being content because we're afraid. We fear that we won't have enough money to take care of things, to pay the rent, to pay groceries. We fear that we're not going to amount to anything in our careers. We fear that if we decide to live a more simple lifestyle, people will look down on us because of what we've decided to wear or decided to drive, or where we've decided to live. Kevin Miller points out that cultural anthropologists 
tell us, based on their research, that North Americans are not obsessed with money itself. What we're really interested in is what money communicates to those around us. You see, in our culture, more money proves that I'm worth something, that I'm competent, that I work hard, and that I'm successful. Now, if we believe what our culture says about money, as I've just described it, then no wonder we are never satisfied. No wonder we want more money. No wonder we fear not having enough and resist being generous because if we don't have enough money to keep up with the Joneses, that means that people will conclude that we're unsuccessful, that we're incompetent, and that we're unappreciated. Well, Paul speaks to our fear. Go over to verse 12. He says, I have learned the secret. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him, through Christ, who gives me strength. When Paul says, I can do all this through Christ, he's not saying, I can be anything I want to be as so many people seem to misquote this verse these days. He's not saying, I can accomplish anything I want to accomplish through Christ. No, he's saying, it's not about me at all. He's saying here, it's not about accomplishing what I want to accomplish. No, he's saying, I can do everything Christ asks me to do. I can do whatever he calls me to do. He will be with me. He will encourage me. He will help me. He will strengthen and empower me to do it. Paul says the secret of being content is the assurance of knowing that when I faithfully follow Jesus and do what he calls me to do, I need have no fear because even if I'm not financially rich, I am rich in Christ. And he is with me. And regardless of what circumstances I may face, whether I have much or I have little, I will accomplish his purposes in and through my life, not in my own strength and power, but through Jesus living out his life through me. Then Paul goes on to give some practical help in how to put our trust in the Lord on a daily basis even when anxiety wells up inside of us. Let's go back to verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then notice what he says next. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Every paragraph you look at ends with the word, and the peace of God will be with you. The peace of God will be yours. The contentment of God will be yours. It will come to you. Paul says, if you want contentment to come to you, then pray about everything and pray with thanksgiving. 
First of all, pray about everything. The next time you find yourself anxious about not having enough or not feeling very secure, concerned whether you're going to make it in retirement or whatever the issue is, stop worrying and start praying instead. Anytime you feel this twinge of anxiety come over you, see it as an alarm that's going off, reminding you that it's time to take it to the Lord in prayer. Jesus wants us to trust him and to come to him. He loves it when we include him in whatever it is we're facing in life. Paul was able to be content and not anxious because he was convinced to the core of his being that there was someone much greater and much more powerful than his fears and his problems. And that someone was right there with him in the prison cell, Jesus himself. He was convinced that he was loved and he was not alone. And that his responsibility was to pray about everything and leave the rest with the Lord. You know, whatever you hold on to, you know, be it your finances, be it a relationship, be it your marriage, be it your business, whatever you refuse to involve God in and give to him, and instead just lug it around, that will be the source of your greatest frustration and anxiety. On the other hand, whatever you give to God in prayer, he will work things out for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory in his time and his way. And when you do that, you will experience his peace and his contentment in your life. Paul says contentment comes to those who pray about everything. And then secondly, they pray with a thankful spirit, a thankful heart. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he writes, give thanks in all circumstances. Notice he doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances, but in all circumstances. Contentment at its core is a choice that we make. We can choose to envy what others have or to be grateful for what we have. Mark Buchanan tells of a time that he joined in worship with about 100 Christians in the country of uh, Uganda. They met in a lean-to building with a tin roof that was set on the edge of a cornfield. The floor was dirt. The instruments were old. Some of the guitars didn't even have all the strings. But boy, did they worship, he says. And then the pastor asked if anyone had anything to share. A tall, willowy woman came to the front and said, oh, brothers and sisters, I love Jesus so much. And the worshipers shouted back, tell us, sister, tell us. Oh, I love him so much. I don't know where to begin to tell you how good he is. Oh, begin there, sister, begin there, they shouted back. Oh, she said, he is so good to me. I praise him all the time for how good he is to me. For three months, I prayed to the Lord for shoes. And look, she said, she lifted 
her skirt a little, exposing one of her feet and one very ordinary-looking shoe. Brothers and sisters, she shouted, the Lord gave me shoes. Hallelujah, he is so good. And the believers clapped and they yelled and they shouted back, hallelujah. But I didn't, said Mark. I was devastated. I sat there hollowed out and hammered down. For you see, in all my life, I had not once prayed for shoes. In all my life, I had not once thanked God for the many shoes that I have. Friends, when was the last time that we thanked God for our shoes? When was the last time we thanked the Lord for our clothes, for hot water, for running water, for electricity, for a warm home? When was the last time we thanked the Lord for our eardrums and the ability to hear and enjoy music? When was the last time we thanked God for our eyes and the magnificent color-filled world that God created for our enjoyment? When was the last time we realized that most of what we enjoy is a gift from our Heavenly Father and it is completely free? 1 Timothy 6.17 says that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You see, when we're truly thankful, we will see God in our circumstances differently. We will acknowledge that our God is perfectly good, that he is perfectly just, he is perfectly powerful, and that in all things, our God works for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. We can trust him in this. Contentment comes to those who put their trust in Jesus, who pray about everything and are thankful in all circumstances. Furthermore, Paul goes on to explain that contentment comes to those who not only trust in Jesus, but who think like Jesus. Look at verse 8. Paul says, finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. The way you think is the single most important shaper of who you are as a person. The way you think affects your attitudes. The way you think shapes your emotions and how content you are in life. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Now, amazingly, people are surprised to learn that what their mind dwells on and is constantly exposed to eventually surfaces in their attitudes, their values, and their behaviors. I mean, people have told me, you know, they they watch these raunchy movies filled with pornography and all kinds of stuff, and they, they, they say, oh, it doesn't affect me. Are you kidding me? 
When sexually charged images and messages are available to anyone who wants them on the internet, we should not be surprised when promiscuity goes up, when sexual addictions and perversion becomes common, and marital fidelity goes down. When teenage girls are regularly exposed to television shows and ads and magazines featuring models who are paid outrageous sums of money to make themselves unnaturally thin and whose bodies are portrayed as being desirable, we should not be surprised to discover that there is a generation of young women who are very discontented with the way that they look and are constantly thinking thoughts like, you know, I'm not thin enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not desirable enough. The same is true in so many other areas of life. Make no mistake, the events that you attend the materials that you read, the music that you listen to, the movies and the shows that you watch, the conversations that you have with friends, these are shaping your mind and your character, the level of your contentment, and make no mistake, they're shaping ultimately your destiny. Now the good news is, is you can change the kind of person that you are the way that you're thinking by doing what Paul says here in verse 8, and that is to deliberately expose your mind to that which is true and right, pure and admirable. This is one of the reasons why reading and meditating on the scriptures, why meeting with a small group of friends, like-minded believers, why attending services like this on a regular basis is so important. I mean, where else in our society are you challenged to think about what's true and right and lovely and pure and wholesome? I mean, have you ever noticed what tends to happen to people after they've heard a sermon, let's say, on, on kindness? I mean, you know, people walk out in the atrium, they've just heard a sermon on kindness, and as they line up for coffee or a meal, everyone says, oh, no, you go ahead of me. Just go ahead. Or they go out in the parking lot, and, and unlike rush hour traffic, unlike post-hockey game time, they actually invite people to cut in on them. Oh, I insist. Please, please, go, go. God bless you. Now, you know, there's always, a, you know, one or two people who slept through the sermon that day. And they're out there in the parking lot, you know, they're, they're, they're honking their horn, they're telling people where to go. But isn't it true that we tend to reflect what we've exposed our mind to? Now, here's the thing. We are constantly bombarded with advertising and shows and all kinds of media that purposefully seek to create discontentment and dissatisfaction within us. Playing on our fears, <clears throat> playing on our greed, suggesting we'll never be desirable without a certain deodorant, or we'll never be desirable without a certain brand of clothes, or happy without a certain expensive toy. You see, they play on our desires. Now, our desires are not wrong. In fact, they're given to us by God. 
The problem is sin distorts and perverts our desires. Advertisers know that if our desires are stimulated in the right way, our appetite for more is engaged and our brain actually starts lying to us. It exaggerates how happy we're going to be if we have this product. Our brain actually becomes so focused on something that having that particular desire satisfied becomes so big that everything else fades away in insignificance. Which explains why we drive away from a clothing store, for example, convinced, I have to have that suit. Or why your teenager says, Mom, if I can't go to that party, I'm going to die. (laughs) Now the truth is, Our desires are never fully and finally satisfied. We feed them, but they just keep welling up again and they get worse. I mean, think about it. I mean, you can sit down to an amazing banquet-like meal and you can completely satisfy your appetite. And yet, what, an hour, two maybe? An hour or two later, you're on the hunt for more food in the pantry. As someone said, when it comes to your finances, as long as your yearnings exceed your earnings, you're going to be in deep doo-doo. You're going to accumulate serious debt. And this is going to not only create anxiety within you, but also conflict and tension in your marriage. In 1 Timothy 6, 9, Paul gives this warning. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. We all know people who have fallen into ruin and destruction because of -of out-of-control desires. We know that. And Paul says, you know, you might be sitting there thinking, this isn't a problem for me. I got things under control. But he's saying this is serious stuff. Harmful, out-of-control desires can wreak havoc in your life and even lead to ruin and destruction unless we begin to say no to our desire for more. So how do we in practical terms say enough already in a world that tries to convince us at every turn that we deserve to have our desires enticed? How do we say enough in a world that tries to convince us that we're dissatisfied and that we need more? Well, Paul says he's learned to be content by intentionally thinking about what's right, what's true, what's pure, and so forth, which implies he's intentionally not thinking about, he's intentionally not exposing his mind to anything that has the potential to lead 
to out-of-control appetites and the possibility of ruin and disruption. He intentionally doesn't expose his mind to the monster of more, more stuff, more status, more security. Now, practically, that means if you're struggling with materialism, seriously consider limiting how much you shop. Now, you know, it's easy for me to say that because as I told you a moment ago, I, I, I don't like shopping. But you see, the problem with shopping is it puts you in an environment that is dedicated to stimulating a strong desire to acquire. The more you shop, the more you expose your mind to stuff you didn't even know existed. And therefore, you didn't even desire it. But, uh uh-oh, the minute you become aware of this new product, guess what? Your desire gets inflamed, and now you need it. For example, you are perfectly happy with your cell phone. Until you become aware that people have been lining up for two days. Crazy people. But anyways, they've been lining up for two days to get the newest, slickest model. And so you get on the computer and you Google this new improved model. And you read about all the improvements and the upgrades. And suddenly your present phone seems 100 years old, totally useless. You drop it. You kick it. You tell it to die already, will you? Because you're looking for an excuse to upgrade to a new phone. See, that's the power of awareness. So if you want to learn to be content with what you have, consider going shopping to get only what you need. And don't take your kids along. Furthermore, learn to avoid the comparison trap. The 10th commandment says, we are not to covet or lust after what others have. You see, covetousness is the exact opposite of contentment. And if our minds are constantly comparing our lot in life with others, we will truly be miserable people. Most people aren't discontent because they have too little. Most people are discontent because they believe they don't have as much as somebody else. Proverbs 14.30 says, A heart at peace, the contented heart, gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Reflect on that. Think deeply about that. Be aware especially of the influence your small group of friends has in this area. If when you're together, there's a lot of talk about how much money people are making, a lot of talk about the purchase of new homes, new toys. Realize that you're in an environment that will breed discontentment in you. Paul says, if you want contentment to come to you, then intentionally 
limit how much you expose your mind to the things that stimulate the monster of more and instead intentionally expose your mind to things that matter to God. In other words, stop focusing so much on the monster of more and focus a whole lot more on the things that matter to God. Instead of always talking with your close friends about new products or recent purchases, hey, take a look at this. What do you think of this? Consider challenging your friends and your family to become more aware of the needs of those in our city and in our world who have much less than we do and agree together to ask God to show you as individuals and as a group what you're going to do about it, what God's calling you to do about it. Over the years, you know, I've, I've seen firsthand the plight of the poor, the orphaned, uh, the sick, in various parts of the world. And, you know, nothing prepared me for that. To see adults and teenagers and children without shoes, uh, with, with few clothes, no running water, no toilets, tin or cardboard shacks to live in, with little or no electricity. I mean, that just, just wrecked me. And yet, despite what little they had, the thing that I will never forget is they were incredibly joyful. In fact, I have seen more joy in the lives of people who had little or nothing than I've seen here in Canada. When I came back, each time I've come back, I found it hard to be patient with people complaining about petty first world problems. I found myself struggling with hypocrisy in my own life and the life of so many in our Western society who find it so hard to give generously and who say, I, I, just, I just can't give anymore. You know, I'm just all tapped out. But somehow find a way to regularly upgrade their wardrobe or their computers or their phones, their cars, even their homes. Now I realize that God never intended for me or any of us to take on the burden of the entire world on our shoulders. But you see, intentionally going on a mission trip to expose ourselves to the plight of those who are less fortunate than we are. And I'm not just talking about a mission trip overseas. I'm talking about a mission trip downtown, down into the inner city, into different parts of our nation where people are experiencing um, hardship and have great need. I'm talking about experiencing firsthand the plight of more than 3 billion people in the world who live on less than $2 a day. I'm talking about becoming aware of the 26,000 children who die every day because of a lack of food or medicine, preventable, disease, preventable causes. And see, when we choose to become aware of the needs of our world, something happens to us. It wakes us up to how blessed and how rich we are in comparison. And it also begins to kill the monster of more in our lives. And so when we're tempted to pay yet another $300 for a gadget that we kind of like but we really don't need, 
Because we've now exposed our thinking and our mind to the festering needs of people in our city, our country, and around the world, we now think twice before we buy that product, realizing that the $300 we're thinking of spending would take care of all the needs of an orphan for a full year. All that to say, thinking like Jesus means we begin to align our thoughts and our lives with those things that he's passionate about and those things that break his heart. We begin to find ways to deliberately unplug ourselves from the monster of more by canceling catalogs that entice us to spend more, by, by monitoring the impact that, that television is having on our desire to acquire by skipping the home show, the the car show, and all the other shows that, that make us want what we really don't need and not only put us into debt, but prevent us from investing what God's entrusted to us in ministries and in the lives of people who matter to him. Imagine the impact that we could have if we were to say, I'm satisfied. And decide to live more simply by putting a cap on our lifestyle and saying, I have all I need. And investing the additional funds and time in what matters to Jesus. You see, that's what Paul did. And in verse 7, he says, when you live like this, you will experience a joy, a peace, and a contentment that surpasses all human understanding. I want you to hear the story of a young couple who learned how to be content in the midst of some very difficult circumstances. Watch this. When we were married, I was 21 and Jeremy was 23. And we came fresh out of school with big time student loans, big time. We had maxed out line of credit. We just bought a new house, new car, we had a new car, and we did not have very good paying jobs. And so I remember one night Jeremy suggested that we sit down and and do a budget. And so, you know, we lined up all of our debts and lined up what we were bringing in. And it was just such an eye-opening moment for us. I remember just looking at that and being like, we are broke. Like, we are broke. And we're not going to be able to float this boat for, you know, six months to a year. Um, so it was at that moment that we were like, we need to budget. And it wasn't because we wanted to, it was because we were forced to. We were in a really, really ugly situation. I was oftentimes uh, wasteful with my money. I spent money very foolishly. I didn't have a thankfulness um, regarding what we had or regarding money. And I just Poor Jeremy, just most of the time what he would hear is, I want, I want, I want, I don't have, I don't have, I don't have. And I, I just never realized what kind of pressure that I put on him. There was a lot of conflict between the two of us. You know, we had started dappling a little bit, talking about God in our marriage, but he certainly wasn't the focus. We were just living for ourselves. It was really hard. It was really hard to just start doing it and have a cheerful heart. Looking back on on some of those challenges, it's amazing how when we made 
a uh, choice that was honoring to God, how he then blessed us. Um, and, and it wasn't always financially that he blessed us. You know, we, we met through our small group, a couple who we absolutely love, and they were a huge inspiration to us. They went on a fast for a year where they purchased food and underwear new. That was it. And I remember just telling Jeremy, like, who does this? Who does this? You know, like, these people are cool and these people are doing it. And so we eventually took Financial Peace University with them as well, which was a, a, a tremendous blessing. But a really cool story where it was just like, wow, that was God, was when I decided to quit my job and stay at home with our two children. We had a, you know, an estimate of, of what I would be getting for my vacation pay. and. Then when it actually came into the bank account, it was actually enough to pay off the remainder of our mortgage. We, we kept the money in the bank account for <laughs> a number of weeks, wholly expecting that her previous employer made a mistake. It, it just brought tears to your eyes because it was like, that was God. Mm -hmm. It was God, he just, he just poured his blessing out on us. I was vehemently opposed to tithing or any type of charity. It was fine for somebody else to give charity and do that type of thing, but it's not something that, that I did. The very first service we attended at Center Street was on tithing. And as we started to work through that process, very shortly after that, we, we stepped out in obedience to, to God and, and we started tithing, which was just in, in hindsight, such a such a three or 180 on on my thought. Yeah, it was, it's pretty. It was pretty crazy. You know, men mentoring other people and, and sharing with other people um, as they go through that struggle is is certainly something that that is on our hearts. I think the Lord has really been challenging us how we can give more, mm -hmm. and I think in our current financial situation, there is a danger because we can rely on ourselves instead of relying on God. When we first started out on this journey, we were stretched so thin and it was such a stretch to give. And now we're, we're comfortable and it's not really a stretch to give. So I think the Lord is bringing us back to that place where he's like, rely on me and I, I want you to give more. I want to stretch you. So I think budgeting is a big part of living simply because if you don't budget then there's just never any money at the end of the month to give. You know we really get Proverbs 22 7 when it says the rich rule over the poor and, and the borrower is slave to the lender. We understand the freedom mm. that you can feel being on the other side. And I think just even for our marriage the freedom you know, that is a really big point of conflict for a lot of marriages. And um, by yeah. God's grace, we don't have that. We don't have that conflict anymore. Whatever the next stage in our giving is, um, it's, there's no hardship. We know that the Lord will provide because he has to this point. So it's kind of exciting. What's in store for the Holtermans? Isn't that wonderful? Amen.
Now, folks, many of you, of course, don't know the Holtermans, uh, but did you happen to notice the joy in their lives? And that wasn't put on. That's really who they are. They're joyful. They've learned to be content by applying the biblical principles that we've been talking about in this series. Paul says contentment comes to those who think about that which is true and noble, right, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. And I want to close by challenging you with two praiseworthy thoughts. The first is love people over things. There are only two things that you and I will bring with us to heaven. Only two. And that is our friendship with Jesus in our hearts and those people that we've introduced to Jesus. That's it. All of our stuff, our trophies, our degrees, our achievements will burn one day. So value your relationships more than achievement. Over the years when I have asked people for their fondest and their greatest memory in life, I can't remember a time when someone mentioned a promotion or a time when someone talked about being appointed CEO of the corporation. I can't remember anyone talking about some possession that they purchased. Without exception, what they shared always centered around a relationship of some kind or another. And I draw that to our attention because if the quality of our relationship with God and with others is all that's going to matter in the end, then why are we fretting so over all the symbols of success in this life? Why are we striving so hard to impress others with our stuff and with our status? I mean, do you realize that your current net worth, however great or small it may be in financial terms, has almost nothing to do with your capacity to experience deeply satisfying, loving relationships? You can create memorable relational moments in a one-bedroom apartment as easily as on the back of a million-dollar yacht. Friends, contentment comes to those who think about such things, who reflect on these things, who decide to love people over things. Furthermore, seek to please Jesus rather than trying to impress others. Some of you have all you need, but you're still not content. You are blessed beyond measure and you don't even realize it. And the primary reason is, is you're still trying to prove yourself. You get your ego gratification from being on top, from being one up on others. Somewhere along the way, you need to ask yourself, who am I trying to impress? Am I so insecure that I feel worthwhile only when I make it to the top? Or am seen as more successful or more effective than somebody else? You know, it's a great day when we quit competing with other people. I love the story of the young boy who said to another boy, my dad can whoop your dad. And the little guy shrugged it off and walked away saying, big deal, my mom can whoop my dad. It's a great day when you stop trying to impress other people. 
and you focus on pleasing Christ. Friends, that's the secret to learning to be content. It's falling back into the arms of Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm satisfied. In you, I have everything I need. Would you stand for closing prayer? Just close your eyes for a moment, bow your heads. I'm just wondering, have you truly fallen back into the arms of Jesus and said, I'm satisfied? Jesus, you're all I need. It's the only way to contentment, folks. I invite you to do that right now. He knows your thoughts. He's calling out to you right now. Put your trust in him. Find your peace in him. Bring to him your regrets. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to invade your life and to set you free and to live his life of love, joy, peace, and contentment through you. Just take a moment and do that right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, and the forgiveness, the peace, and the contentment he came to bring through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Lord, I pray for all those who just now have made a decision to fall back into your arms and who have said, Jesus, I'm satisfied. In you, I have all I need. You're more than enough. I'd rather have you than anything. Bless them, Lord, for their obedience, their humility, their act of surrender. May they experience your peace and contentment in a deeper and a richer way each and every day from this day forward. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.